Hello everyone and welcome to the October 22nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court conviction of Irma Hammond for insurance fraud and perjury arising out of her workers' compensation claim while she was employed by Wells Fargo Bank. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of People versus Irma Hammond. At the 2005 WCAB hearing, Irma Hammond testified that she was being treated by Dr. Hunt for her 1996 industrial injuries. When asked at the trial if she has good days and bad days, she responded that every day she has a bad day and that she does not have any good days. Also at the WCAB trial, Hammond was asked, did you drive yourself from your home to the location where the therapy was administered? And she responded, no. She was also asked, during the time you were getting the therapy, were you able to drive? And she also responded, no. Hammond was also asked, when did you last drive? And she responded, about three years ago. Hammond was then asked, your testimony is that the last time you drove anywhere is about three years ago, and she responded, yeah. Hammond testified that she cannot drive to the supermarket or her local mall. She admitted at the hearing that she owns a Dodge truck, but said, I don't drive it. She claimed that she stopped driving because she experienced double vision and was not able to maneuver the truck because of the injuries to her shoulder and lack of strength in her hands and shoulders, and because she was taking medication that caused blurred vision, nausea, and drowsiness. Hammond also testified at the WCAB hearing that she started using a cane in February 2004, and it was prescribed by Dr. Hunt. She testified that she always had to use the cane, and she was had to use it to get out of her car and to walk around the house. I think you know where we're going with this. A private investigator testified both at the WCAB hearing and at the criminal trial that he conducted surveillance of Hammond in March of 2005. He took video of her driving a Dodge truck to her home, exiting the vehicle without the assistance of a cane, walking to her home without the assistance of a cane, and a few hours later exiting her home and driving the Dodge truck away from the home. Hammond attempted to explain away this evidence. She claimed that on the day of the WCAB hearing, she was emotional and highly medicated. Hammond formed the opinion that she was having trouble with her memory at the hearing and mixed dates, years, and events due to the drugs she was on at the time. After review of the evidence, the Court of Appeal did not buy the excuse and sustained the criminal conviction. The court concluded that it is reasonable for a fact finder to assume that Hammond knew at the time of the WCAB hearing that she could drive and had driven within three years before the WCAB hearing. And now our fraud report. Pharmacists from Fountain Valley, Irvine, and Huntington Beach were among 16 defendants indicted by a federal grand jury this month for allegedly being part of a massive drug trafficking organization. Authorities claim they illegally obtained OxyContin pills partly through fraudulent prescriptions billed to programs such as Medicare and sold them on the street 
reaping millions of dollars in profits. 47-year-old Elizabeth Duke-Tron, who was the owner-operator of Mission Pharmacy in Fountain Valley, has pleaded not guilty along with the 15 other defendants. 54-year-old Perry Tan Nguyen, the owner-operator of St. Paul's Pharmacy in Huntington Beach, also pleaded not guilty, as did 48-year-old Matthew Cho, part owner of Yoon's chain of pharmacies. Prosecutors outline a scheme in which a medical clinic was used as a base of operations for doctors who wrote OxyContin prescriptions for patients who did not need the powerful painkiller. The OxyContin was obtained from local pharmacies, some of which submitted fraudulent bills to the public insurance programs. Members of the conspiracy allegedly resold more than 900,000 OxyContin pills on the street for between approximately $23 and $27 per pill. Prosecutors contend that Lake Medical Group used recruiters to bring Medicare and Medi-Cal patients to the clinic in exchange for cash or other rewards. The patients were seen by medical doctors or physician assistants who would provide a prescription for a high dosage of OxyContin, usually 90 pills at 80 milligrams strength, and order unnecessary medical tests and procedures to help justify the OxyContin prescription. Runners employed by the Lake Medical Group took the recruited patients to pharmacies where they obtained the OxyContin, which was then diverted to a dealer who sold it on the street. Lake Medical Group operated for approximately 18 months, during which time doctors working at the clinic prescribed nearly 11,000 prescriptions for OxyContin. The investigation into the fraud ring was called Operation Dirty Lake to deal with the large amounts of cash generated from the illegal OxyContin sales some of the defendants allegedly structured cash deposits in amounts of $10,000 or less to evade bank reporting requirements. Additional pharmacists indicted included 44-year-old Fick Lim and 40-year-old Thena Ko of Pasadena. State pharmacy regulators have opened an investigation into reports that CVS Caremark refilled prescriptions and build insurance companies without patients' consent. Officials from the California Board of Pharmacy said that investigators were probing complaints about the refill practices one of the country's largest drugstore chains. Customers in California and other states said they were surprised to find that CVS had renewed doctors' prescriptions and billed insurers without their consent, and in some cases enrolled them in an automatic refill service without their knowledge. A spokesman for the pharmacy said that the CVS policy requires that a patient's consent be obtained before a prescription is filled and that CVS would provide the pharmacy board with any information needed. The state board is the third governmental body known to be looking into the company's refill practices. The Inspector General's Office for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services launched an investigation into CVS billing practices as well. The Inspector General's inquiry is the starting point for any case involving possible fraud of Medicare. Findings from both the state and federal probes could be referred to local district attorneys for prosecution. 
The pharmacy board also has the power in extreme cases to revoke the professional pharmacy licenses of companies or individuals found to violate state law, effectively shutting them down. Fraud charges also could be filed under California's insurance and managed health care laws. The latest investigations aren't the first into CVS practices. Last year, the chain agreed to pay $17.5 million to resolve allegations that the company falsified claims for prescription drugs for Medicaid programs in California and nine other states. In that case, the Justice Department accused CVS of submitting inflated bills to the health care program for low-income people who had other insurance as well. As part of the settlement, CVS denied any wrongdoing, but agreed to allow federal authorities to monitor its billing procedures. Data from the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General and the Department of Justice says that more than 10,000 subjects, individuals, and entities were investigated for health care fraud. These subjects included different types of provider and suppliers, such as physicians, hospitals, durable medical equipment suppliers, home health agencies, and pharmacies that serve Medicare, Medicaid, and other beneficiaries. Hospitals and medical facilities were the most frequent subjects investigated in civil fraud cases, including cases that resulted in judgments or settlements. Many of the more than 7,800 criminal subjects in 2010 were medical facilities or durable medical equipment suppliers, representing about 40% of subjects of criminal cases. Similarly, in 2005, medical facilities and DME suppliers accounted for 41% of criminal case subjects. Of the subjects whose cases were pursued, most were found guilty or pled guilty or no contest. In 2010, about 35% more subjects were investigated in civil fraud cases than back in 2005. Over 40% of the subjects investigated for healthcare fraud were home healthcare providers and healthcare practitioners. Home healthcare providers comprised nearly 40% of criminal convictions and 45% of subjects sentenced in 2010. Civil healthcare fraud cases resulted in judgments and settlements totaling nearly $829 million. Pharmaceutical manufacturers were to pay more than 60% of the total amount of civil judgments and settlements. 51-year-old Lanita McCallum and 58-year-old Kevin McCallum, both of Pebble Beach, were sentenced for acting with intent to evade taxes, failure to register as an employer, and failure to secure workers' compensation insurance. The couple owned Suds Cyber Laundry in Pacific Grove. Prior employees contacted investigators of the District Attorney's Workers' Compensation Unit when they were denied unemployment benefits after being fired. The court reduced Lenita McCallum's felony count to a misdemeanor and placed her on three years informal probation and ordered her to serve 45 days in county jail or complete an equivalent work alternative program. She had already paid a $10,000 fine to the Fraud Division of the Department of Insurance. Kevin McCollum was placed on felony probation, ordered to serve 40 days in county jail, or complete an equivalent work alternative program, and 
pay fines in the amount of $20,000, of which $5,000 was suspended during probation. The court further ordered both McCallums to pay the Employment Development Department more than $3,000, maintain and provide proof of workers' compensation insurance for all employees, pay all employees only by check itemizing all appropriate payroll deductions, and to comply and maintain all licenses in any state or county or city in which they conduct business. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has modified the text of proposed inpatient hospital fee schedule regulations. The DWC has electronically distributed the first 15-day notice of modifications to interested parties and has posted the modified regulations on the DWC website. Members of the public may comment on the modifications until 5 o'clock p.m. on November 2, 2012. The proposed modifications to the text of the inpatient hospital fee schedule regulations are authorized by various provisions of the California Labor Code. The modifications in this draft of the regulations include the implementation of provisions of Senate Bill 863 as it relates to the OMFS inpatient hospital fee schedule and in particular when and how additional allowance is permitted for implantable spinal devices used in specified complex spinal surgeries. And adjustments made to the inpatient hospital fee schedule through two administrative director orders issued subsequent to the notice of proposed rulemaking and public hearing held back on January 25, 2011. The new regs also harmonize billing requirements with the division's e-billing and standardized paper billing regulations. In accordance with SB 863, the modifications to the proposed inpatient hospital fee schedule regulations pertaining to the payment methodology for specific complex spinal surgeries are following. The Division of Workers' Compensation has created a new webpage devoted to Senate Bill 863. The new webpage contains a variety of materials that will assist in the transition to SB 863. DIR Director Christine Baker said that the new webpages will answer many of the questions people have about the legislation and how it will affect them. Understanding the changes and making them work is the first step in realizing the goal of increasing benefits to injured workers and containing costs. The new web materials include the text of Senate Bill 863 with a narrative overview and a rulemaking timeline and an index by labor code sections. The new web page also includes information on the meetings by working groups formed to discuss regulation proposals. Subjects include home health care fee schedules, independent bill review, independent medical review, lien filing and activation fees, pre-designations, and caps on chiropractors as primary treating physicians, and supplemental job displacement benefit vouchers. And in financial news, State Fund President and CEO Tom Rowe gave the keynote speech at the opening of the inaugural Insurance Fest in San Diego. The group represents several thousand brokers and agents and is comprised of 31 affiliated local associations. Roe focused on Senate Bill 863, California's new workers' compensation law that takes effect on January 1st. Roe said he thinks SB 863 holds great promise to save employers money. 
The bill has so much promise that State Funds Board recently voted to drop rates 7%. What he likes about the bill is that it put the two primary parties, labor and employers, in a room together and kept all the secondary stakeholders out of the debate. A move that in the end left out medical providers, the insurance industry, and applicants' attorneys. The insurance industry has embraced the new law, while medical providers have offered little feedback and applicants' attorneys have continued to oppose the new law. Roe has overseen a trying period for the state fund in the last few years as the organization has undergone several major changes. State Fund began its current transition in 2010 with moves to slice into losses and run the organization more efficiently. At the start of the transition, State Fund had roughly 7,600 employees. They will end the year at a number close to 4,500. Rowe said the organization was misaligned, operating on market principles and workers' compensation that have long passed and a large part of what misalignment was driven by expenses. He added that since 1995, when workers' comp went into an open rating market, the market has gotten more violent. State Fund is only now just catching up with those changes, such as adopting pricing tools. Another element in State Fund's metamorphosis is a change in its broker distribution model requiring most of the roughly 5,000 brokers and agents to go through one of two wholesalers. The change, which is effective January 1st, establishes premium thresholds to qualify for a direct contract with the state fund. California comp costs have moved from fifth to third highest in the nation. The Oregon Department of Consumer and Business Services has released its biennial study on national workers' compensation premium rates. The study ranks all 50 states and the District of Columbia according to their workers' compensation costs. In the new ranking, the median index rate, a benchmark for rates nationally, has dropped to $1.88 for 2012, 8% below the 2010 median value. Alaska had the highest 2012 workers' compensation rate, and Connecticut was second, followed by California, who was in third place. When the study was last published in 2010, California was the fifth highest in cost in the nation, and thus they have moved up two steps higher in cost to third place. Oregon researchers report that in recent years, rates across states have moved closer together. As differences have narrowed, rankings have become more volatile. A state can move multiple positions without a big change in its rates. Oregon has conducted these studies in even-numbered years since 1986, when Oregon's rates were among the highest in the nation. The department reports the results to the Oregon legislature as a performance measure. Oregon's relatively low rate today reflects the state's workers' compensation system reforms and its improvements in workplace safety and health. Oregon was 39th on the list and now has the 13th least expensive workers' compensation rates in the nation. And in other news, Edgewood Partners Insurance Center, a retail property casualty and employee benefits insurance brokerage, has added Joe Dunn as Vice President Workers' Compensation Claims in its Fresno office. 
Dunn brings 11 years of experience in workers' compensation, settlement negotiations, and Medicare sectors to EPIC. As Vice President, Workers' Compensation Claims, Dunn will be responsible for Workers' Compensation Claims advocacy. He will work with EPIC's Central Valley clients to manage and reduce claims expenses. This will include education and training, investigating and overseeing claims, and establishing best practices for claims cost control. Dunn will also coordinate and oversee insurance carrier services, ensuring case reserves are not excessive. Additionally, he will make sure that all claims are effectively managed to an early, successful conclusion and that experience modifications are kept low. Before joining EPIC, Dunn worked as Senior Workers' Compensation Claims Adjusters for the State Compensation Insurance Fund. In this role, he determined liability and coordinated the distribution of workers' compensation benefits to qualified workers. He also was responsible for providing quality customer care, overseeing project timelines, and defending the state fund against fraudulent activities. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.